This week, the battle for Mosul began, even as the European Union sought sanctions against Russia for its bombing campaign in Aleppo. As one is branded a grand coalition against ISIS and the other a war crime by the European Union, we'll be looking at who's fighting whom and if war is the only way to bring peace to the region. In studio, Declan Power is a security analyst, Susan Phillips is a foreign policy analyst and Vincent Jurak is a lecturer in Middle East politics in UCD. The hour has come and the moment of great victory is near, said Haider al-Abadi, Iraq's prime minister, three days ago. Declan, will you explain to us what is happening in Mosul? It's fairly straightforward. Mosul is uh, in the process of being taken back from ISIS. It was an ISIS stronghold. Along with the fall of Dabiq, this is hugely symbolic. It's not just a case of taking back ground. It's a case of taking back the uh, platform that ISIS have been using to influence the broader more youthful as uh, elements of the Islamic population internationally, and it's a very it's a very public type of battle. Now, what's interesting, and from my opinion, is that it's in no doubt that it's going to fall. It seems to be on the face of it falling a little bit faster than perhaps was expected. But you have this very unholy alliance, and how they are going to carve it up or deal with matters afterwards remains to be seen. And this has, unfortunately, and I think the other two speakers would agree, uh, certainly they've been delving into this uh, quite a bit. But this has been an unfortunate occurrence in the Middle East. The combat, the conventional phase of operations ends, and then there is a breakdown in the peace building, the diplomacy, the mix of political stability uh, building and security that needs to happen. Because you can't put it all into the hands of just a military force. And we're seeing a mixture of forces, conventional forces, militia forces. You have the Kurds working alongside elements of the Iraqi special forces. You have the US, UK and French there in the background in terms of operational planning and capacity building. And it seems you have the Turks sticking their oar in as well. And everybody wants to have a say in what's going to happen in this piece of territory. Will it enhance stability? Let me say one thing. The end of ISIS can only be welcomed and a good thing. But don't be deluded and think that it is the end of fundamentalist Islamic terrorism. It's perhaps the end, maybe to paraphrase Winston Churchill, the beginning of the end of that iteration of terrorism. Susan Phillips, will you go through the forces that constitute this coalition and explain the tensions between them and why this is so complicated, even in terms of who's allowed to enter the city? There's huge tensions. You firstly have to see the Iraqi army. And don't forget that when Mosul was taken by ISIS in 2014, the Iraqi army were pathetic. They just ran for cover. People said it was because the army was so corrupt that they couldn't put a situation together where they could even hold it. I mean, don't forget that it's nearly two million people It's a huge, huge place. So ISIS took it. And from there, ISIS declared the caliphate. Al-Baghdadi actually declared, this is the caliphate. This is the center of the caliphate. So to lose it, you could argue, for ISIS is a huge loss. It won't, as Declan just said, to my opinion as well, it won't make the slightest bit of difference. ISIS will continue. The jihadist groups of radical Islam will continue worldwide. Some people say that the reason ISIS has taken a few knocks recently, and in Syria as well, is that they've persuaded would-be followers on social media. They've said, stay at home. Don't come out to Iraq and Syria and join us, foreign young lads. Stay at home and attack your own people locally. 
Also, I think perhaps these two would know better than me. I think their funding has probably slightly run out, hasn't it? Well, I think it's, you see, it's diminished and it's a very simple thing. Not that long ago, Jean-Pierre Filou was in town. I don't know, did you get to hear him? Who is he? He's a French former diplomat and writer on these matters, spent a lot of time in Aleppo. And he made a few key points that resonated with me about uh, ISIS. They're kind of tabloid terrorists. Their message is very simple. We win because Allah has decreed it so. And they pluck what they want out of Islamic theory and theology. And they use it to influence those who aren't that well versed in it. And as long as they keep putting out this simplistic message, they were going to be a siren lure to people who were looking to belong to something. And so unfortunately, and also they weren't interested in talking to anybody. He, he recounted a meeting mm-hmm. uh, within the French Foreign Service where somebody was arguing, well, we have to dialogue with these people. There was silence for a moment. And then somebody said, well, do you want to be the first ambassador <laughs> to IS? And, and there was further <laughs> silence after that. They weren't interested in dialogue because it didn't suit their needs. So now they have to be taken on. They have to be seen to be physically yeah. beaten militarily. And to so back, Susan, yes, yes, to the coalition. To go back to yeah. your original question, you have the Iraqi army, you have the very brave Kurdish Peshmerga. Mm. The difficulty with the Kurdish Peshmerga is that they are falling out heavily with the Turks. So the Turks are not, in fact, the Turks in Syria have bombed some of the Kurdish battalions just two days ago. And, and that's because they're afraid of Kurdish nationalist you movement. You see, don't forget, as uh, we always used to learn at school, that the Kurds were a nation without a state. So there's bits of them in Iraq, there's bits in Syria, there's bits in Turkey. And everybody's frightened that they've been so brave in defeating ISIS that maybe they should get something out of it. But then you've got some just Sunni tribal, apparently there's a, a thousand different little Sunni tribal missions that are all fighting each other, but they're there as well. You've got the Christian militias and you've got obviously various, uh, apparently some Shiite militias as well. So it's very complicated. And in the end, who's going to be the ones that say we've freed Mosul, but we want some of it? And Vincent Jurak, I believe that there has been an agreement, for example, that the Kurds are not allowed to enter Mosul. The agreement in this coalition is they can take the outside towns but not go in, that Mosul is a sunny city mm-hmm. and that has implications for what might happen when the Shia army move in. Explain all that to us. Yeah, Haider al-Abadi is at least uh, better than his predecessor Nuri al-Maliki in acknowledging the tension between the majority Shia population and the minority Sunnis in Iraq and it's a balance of power where formerly the Sunnis were in the ascendancy despite being a minority. The Shias have been put very crudely since the invasion of 2003. Al-Abadi has tried to avoid at least some of the overt majoritarianism, if you like, of his predecessor. And specifically in relation to Mosul, which um, as has been pointed out, is not only the second largest and an enormous city, with still perhaps a million to a million and a half people, nobody's completely sure, in the, the city. Obviously a lot left before and after ISIS took over a couple of years ago. It's still a very significant city and it's still a majority Sunni city. And in acknowledgement of those sensitivities, Al-Abadi has announced that notwithstanding, as Susan has pointed out, the complex and even ragtag nature of the set of forces that are attacking right now, that only the forces of the Iraqi National Army will be allowed to take the city, as it were, you won't be seeing, you know, Kurdish flags as are being flown in villages outside Mosul at the moment. But of course, this isn't just about sensitivities. This isn't about the niceties of religious difference. The reality is that both before and after the rise of ISIS and certainly in recent campaigns to eliminate or remove ISIS from other cities that it has taken and took so successfully in that 
that rapid period of expansion a couple of years ago. Shia militias, particularly those irregular Shia militias, the popular mobilisation units, I think Susan was referring to them, have been accused, and there's a great deal of evidence of this, of atrocities that they carry out against the Sunni population because they're still score settling. They're still, as Declan has said, of course, all of this, and Susan also, is of a piece with carving out spheres of influence, sometimes territorial, sometimes in relation to national politics in Baghdad. But the simple reality is there there has been very nasty, violent episodes in the course of the campaign to remove ISIS and perpetrated perhaps against ISIS sympathisers, perpetrated more likely against the general Sunni population. So the big fear for al-Abadi is that you'll see a repeat of that and then things get very messy because this A, no longer becomes a clean victory for the Iraqi government and its allies, um, but B, it heightens the, the possibility that in response you will see the sort of sectarian violence that everybody hopes not to see in the next few weeks and months. Declan, what do we know about what life is like in Mosul under ISIS? Well, it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, at the risk of being flippant. Yeah. No, it, it, what struck me actually when you asked me that question was, uh, I think, did you say it earlier uh, about the simplistic kind of looking of, well, bombing of Aleppo is bad, bombing yeah. of Mosul is good. And what came into my head when you were saying that was, it's a little bit different in that Mosul, the ordinary population there would have been subjected to an inordinate amount of abuse and harassment is too small a word for it, brutality. I mean, this is what we know has happened in ISIS-held areas. There has been an irrational level of brutality. You had uh, Sunni members of the population, I suppose, you know, to understand it, <clears throat> they were so badly treated by the Shia-led government of Iraq that ISIS seemed like a good deal. Were but ISIS e- Sunni? ISIS, yes. Yeah. And ISIS seemed, okay, they're extreme, but they're our tribe, and we know what we're dealing with here. But even, if, from what I can gather, even that has soured ordinary Sunnis. So, to be quite honest, I think from the ordinary... And I found it a little bit ironic that the UN was bleating about a humanitarian disaster because I would say, what's been happening for the last two years? I would consider that a humanitarian disaster. So, you know, the fall of Mosul from the ordinary civilian's point of view, it's not going to be pleasant. But the continuation of it as it stands is not pleasant either. They're, you know, they're being a, between a rock and a hard place. The only thing is, if it's done swiftly, that at least the conventional heavy fighting will end. And I think we need to understand that. That's a problem in Syria overall. Uh, sometimes people get very polarised or oh, should it be, you know, uh, you can't do a deal with the side, you can't do X, Y. I think at this stage, everybody would just like to see some sort of a deal that allows people hold their ground and the heavy munitions to stop, the heavy bombardments, the air attacks. The problem is with all of the different parties that are involved in the Syrian conflict, IS are probably the most irrational. So they have to be sort of taken out of the equation first before you can get, I think, any other people around the table to hammer out some sort of a ceasefire. Susan, though I can just imagine if you are in Mosul, what a double-edged sword it is that on the one hand you're looking at liberation, but there must be terrible damage will be done in the process. Well, there will be. But the odd thing is that I remember reading a recent report to say that in Mosul under ISIS, the bins were always emptied and the buses ran on time. Now, that might be nonsense, but of course it was an autocratic, cruel, dictatorial affair. I think that 
a lot might depend on the Americans because the Americans have been pivotal in their bombing raids. And so how much of Mosul is just going to be bombed into oblivion by the Americans? And without the Americans, the Iraqi army are absolutely upfront and honest saying, we can't do it. And that has, the joint cooperation has led to the, the freeing of other cities. But one of the rather sinister pieces which could happen is that if the ISIS leaders and the whole lot of ISIS, they just depart Mosul in a mob, they're dressed as perhaps refugees, and they go straight to Raqqa, they go straight to Syria, and they fuel up the opposition to Assad, and then is America laughing all the way to the bank? Yeah, and that's where actually the map comes in handy. You know, when you see Mosul is not that far from the Syrian border, really. You know, you can see how they could get there pretty fast. Vincent, so the Americans are providing air power for this. Okay, and you need bombing. Will you tell me what is different about the American bombing in Mosul and the Russian bombing in Aleppo? I think there is a a real difference. I know it's easy to, you know, suggest that these are straightforwardly comparable, but um, in the first instance, I'm not aware. I could be wrong. I'm certainly open to question, but I'm not aware of any intent on the part of the loose alliance of forces and particularly the uh, Iraqi government to conduct aerial bombardment of Mosul precisely because it is we're talking about a city of one million, one and a half million. There are clearly imprecise estimates of the the core number of ISIS or IS fighters, but it's been estimated to be as low as 5,000. So sorry, how do 5,000 hold a city of a million or a million and a half? I have no idea In on one level. On another, I can only imagine it is because of their unconditional willingness to deploy absolutely brutal force. Now, they do it, of course, as well in concert with very many of the institutions that govern the city. I mean, those who want to see the bins emptied, those who want to see the traffic lights observed, um, which is a rarity across the Middle East in times of war or peace, it has to be said. So I don't mean that there are 5,000 people running a city of yeah. one and a half million people. But what I mean is the hardcore of the movement. I don't want to make trite comparisons, but if you look at Northern Ireland, you know, you realise that a very small number of mostly men willing to commit murder in extremis will command a lot of attention. But the difficulty for the coalition of forces um, that are taking on IS is that this is not a conventional army. They're not located in the barracks. They're scattered throughout the population. They've been very strategic. They may or may not use human shields, but at any rate, they're inserted in the, the broader civilian population. So I don't think we're going to see that sort of bombing. So in that fairly straightforward sense, they're not comparable. The US has used air power in the course of the series of assaults on IS-held towns and positions across Iraq. Again, I do think it has been more targeted. What you're looking at in Aleppo is indiscriminate. And it is closer, dare I say, to the US-supported Saudi war and aerial bombardment of Yemen, about which we all forget, where undoubtedly you have war crimes taking place. And there, the people committing the war crimes are our guys. It's the Saudis and the Emiratis. And that, in a sense, is a more straightforward comparison. Not, I think, with Iraq, where for all sorts of reasons, for humanitarian reasons, but also strategic reasons, it doesn't help anybody if the US and its allies are associated with the aerial bombardment of civilians, precisely to point up the difference with Assad and the Russians but also because it's the right thing not to do. Absolutely. Declan, so if the Americans are enabling bombing in Yemen, you know, via the Mm -hmm. Saudis, 
Does that undermine their moral authority to criticise the Russians for what they're doing in Aleppo? Well, in a general sense, I think it does. And, you know, and Vincent has kind of talked about the elephant in the room, the whole role of Saudi in that region. But I think we do have to differentiate. They don't, the Americans do not control as much as we sometimes like to think they do. I mean, the reality is that they're trying to influence and their influence has been on the wane. And we should be concerned about this. People get very concerned about uh, US interventions and sometimes the lack of interventions. Interventionism is not necessarily a bad thing, as we can see in Syria. Do you uh, think, sorry to cut across here, that sorry, Obama's yeah. failure to intervene earlier yes, yeah, will be his, yeah, his legacy and his shame? Absolutely. What happened was there was a power vacuum and the Russians have... Sl- so in, because it wasn't Western and particularly US intervention at an early stage in the Syrian conflict, when the Free Syrian Army were in the uh, ascent and they were pro-Western, they had a, a, a sense of responsibility about them and they had a plan and they were looking for Western assistance and we gave them a meagre amount of humanitarian assistance and that was it. So then they withered, their influence withered, these extremist groups came to the fore and then you had all these young Western uh, jihadis coming from different parts of the world looking to who's going to take the fight to Assad. Free Syrian army, that's who I want to join, oh they're, they're not doing it anymore, Jabhat al-Nusra, mm-hmm. whoever. And they, they got, rad- I'm sure a lot of them got radicalised in the process. Now I think Vincent makes a very valid point. The US now are trying to get back in the game. Air power is a very important aspect of ground support operations. And this is one of the reasons that the Iraqi army initially cut and run. They weren't properly trained. They weren't. They didn't have the capacity. It's not just purely about numbers. I figure of about, I think it was 1,500, or no, 3,000 routed an Iraqi army of 30,000 in the early stages of that conflict. Command and control, or rather the lack of it, lack of a will to fight. Nice uniforms and shiny weapons do not an army make. It's about fighting will, trust that has been built up over time and training. The Iraqi army didn't have it. Who did have it were the Kurds. And the Kurds did an amazing amount of work with very little. And in this part of the world, we hear people bemoaning bombing of Raqqa, as it was, about a year ago. And we were forgetting that the Kurds needed air support. And this was, they needed the coordination ability as well. And that we in the West, we wanted them to kind of take the fight to IS, but we didn't want to give them the means to do it. Mm. So this, it comes back to, again, this, what I feel is a crucial element, that in the West, and in the US in particular, we opted out. We didn't stand up to our duties. We didn't meet expectations that we had sort of created on the ground. And, And now Russia has crept in, Russian culture is different. I mean, we're talking about a country thought nothing about losing your millions in the Second World War. I mean, it's a different outlook. So when it comes when it comes to their deployment of air assets, they're not worrying about public opinion in the way that Barack Obama has to worry about. Putin doesn't have that problem. And he certainly and he'll have less of a problem if Donald Trump becomes president and they'll start love bombing one another. But the, the reality is that the Russians, there is a target. Yeah, let's go in. And they're not concerned about collateral damage. They don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Susan Phillips, I was reading about Obama's foreign policy last night and when he first came into the White House, his mantra was, don't do stupid shit. He was referring back, obviously, to you know Bush's invasion of Iraq. And there's this theory that that mistake affected him so much that he was so determined not to repeat that mistake that that frightened him off intervening in Syria when he should have. 
And actually, the stupid thing was not intervening. Do you agree with that? I think that's a perfectly reasonable thought. I think that he will be judged with his foreign policy as very, very weak, very kowtowing. Yes, maybe you could say he'd seen one war, boots on the ground, he said, was something he wouldn't repeat. But what you have to look at, as Declan was saying, is that the dominance now of Russia, you can go to a conference on Syria and you can list all the different groupings and you suddenly realise, oh, we haven't talked about America. I mean, that's how serious it is. Now, the Americans didn't fuel and uh, give weapons to the Free Syrian Army. And now recently they've been very criticised for the fact that they haven't fueled the rebels who now have had to rely on the sort of jihadi Nusra people who are able to get a lot of arms. And so you're looking at a situation where you could say quite easily that Russia now is the dominant partner. Now, is Russia doing it because when everything is settled, if it ever is, but even, you know, even the Lebanese civil war came to an end, civil wars do come to an end. What are we looking at? Are we looking at a situation where Russia has a very strong place at the table and they say, all we want out of this is to see that Assad has a state on the west of the country and we have our Mediterranean ports, we have our air base and Assad is secure. And then we'll say that in the middle of Syria, we'll allow a big uh, Sunni dominated state which might join up with some Sunni land from Iraq. Because what you've got to re remember is that, Sarah, is that the whole Middle East was divided up, as we all know, by Sykes-Picot, which were lines drawn <coughs> like that. Yeah. And they allowed for the colonialist victors, France and uh, Britain, at the end of the First World War, to be very assured that they would keep their influence. But it didn't allow for such different opposing groupings, which have, con particularly Sunni and Shiite, who, when you get down to it, they detest each other. You look at the way Saudi and Iran detest each other. And uh, the extraordinary thing about that is, I've been reading a lot about it recently, how few theological differences there are between Sunni mm. and Shia. It's this argument about authority. Now, Vincent wants to get in. Yes, yeah. I think it is greatly to overstate matters to say that Sunnis and Shias detest each other. It's simply not true. There is, of course, this pervasive narrative now that the Middle East is in the middle of some sort of grand sectarian conflict that's being played out in in different ways and on different fronts. The simple reality is that for centuries, what we see is a history of coexistence, of mutual toleration. What we see in Islam for centuries is the absence of the sort of wholesale religious wars that characterised the I, emergence I of different sects uh, in the West. But has that not changed? And in fairness, perhaps <clears throat> been stoked up by various yeah. it's other... Been, it's been stoked up, but what we're talking about once more, and we've seen this throughout history, is the instrumentalisation of religious difference. We're not talking about innate difference that leads to violence. Shias don't fight Sunnis because they're Sunnis. Sunnis don't fight Shias because they're Shias. What do you get are straightforwardly political and economic and other disputes over resources, over territory, onto which there is an overlay of sectarian difference. So now it becomes justifiable to pitch one. The Saudis supported a Shia conservative imamate in Yemen in the 1960s. Now they see themselves at war with Shia rebels. Yeah, and I've but seen that in nonsense. I've seen that in other conflicts where I think even in Rwanda, you know, tribes did live side by side for years. But once something was stoked up, once an external factor yeah. was brought in, then that was it. It was the religious hook on which. Yes, but it you, was you all don't see religion yeah. as a consistent feature in but, the foreign policy of these states, quickly. either Saudi or Iran. The Ira Iranians do not make common cause with the Azeris 
who are 95% but, but Shia. But you have okay, seen Susan. some absolutely brutal suicide bombings between each, of one for the other. The Sunnis saying, we did that, and the Shias saying, we did that, of their mosques, of their meetings, of their public <coughs> demonstrations. I mean, brutal. So you can't say they're not at each other. No, they I, are. I'm not disputing that there's violence and brutality. What I'm saying is... Whole populations do not detest each other on the grounds of religion alone. It's incredibly yeah. tried to well, say you otherwise. Could, you couldn't say Saudi and Iran were best friends, could you? Those are political leaders, not populations. Based on their their culture, I'd say. But I think the Sunni-Shia divide gets manipulated. It gets, you know, and I think you know, there are catalysts get thrown in. We shouldn't forget too that it gets so complex. I think you know Vincent of all people knows this to try and unknit this. The Sunnis at times will perpetrate atrocities on their own people and did so in Iraq because they wanted to pull them, you know, we're the only ones who can protect you. There were actually Sunni organisations that attacked people in their own neighbourhoods, carried out brutal killings to try and separate their people, even more so from looking to the government for any legitimate form of assistance. Now, there's another element I just want to throw into this as well in terms of religion, particularly when it comes to mentioning Saudi. The Wahhabi Salafist element, because this is the thing we, we and have that's to. Sunni. That's that's that, Sunni. yes, it's yeah. Sunni. The Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah, and it, it's a thing we have to remember because there's vast swathes of ordinary Muslims that just want to to live and and to get on with it. Now, I don't pretend to know the exact intricacies of Salafism, other than that it suggests or it, it allows for a very extreme form of thinking and it supports and underlines this kind of one-dimensional approach and it undermines legitimate Islam as far as I'm concerned. And I think therein is the problem. And this emanates from Saudi Arabia. The Saudi state don't endorse this, but the Saudi state seems to turn its head. It kind of turns a blind eye to the fact that influential business people and others are enthralled to Salafism and they fund it. And, it, you know, the funds come from the Gulf states that made IS the And America force. is supporting Saudi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, well, you know, America does not want to see IS. This is a complex thing. They want to keep Saudi online. Like, Saudi is an ally of the West, titularly. But within Saudi, you have this hotbed of Salafist um, disquiet and uh, funding uh, and supporting things that are at odds with the West. It's not simple. So how do you try and do that? You could argue that, well, if you turn around and you start battering Saudi over the head, so to speak, diplomatically and whatever else, that you'll alienate them even further. I I want to just come back to Vincent. I know you're still a little bit frustrated at our Sunni Shia analysis of the conflict, but we did a lot of um, programming around this during the summer and we interviewed David Berube, author of the book Us and Them. You know, and it's all about identity politics, which has taken over so much, not Mm -hmm. just the Middle East. And, you know, as I say, yes, Sunni and Shia did coexist um, and do, but that's over now. It's been hijacked for these other purposes. And once you get into that equation, once you get into that way of stoking up differences between people, it's done and it's very difficult to roll back. If that's the case, and I absolutely doubt it, if that's the case, we're destined for perennial conflict between Mm. Sunnis and Shias in all places and for all times for as long as there are significant Sunni and Shia populations in the Middle East, in Pakistan, in Nigeria, in any other part of the world. The last time I looked, there wasn't much by way of Sunni-Shia conflict in the US or in the UK. Well, no, you don't have to spread it out all over the world. Maybe it will just be in this region. My point is, if it's innately religious, if the origin of Mm. conflict is innately religious and is a function of religious difference then why would it be any different in one place or another? The difference between those places in which you typically do not see conflict and those in which you do, 
have to do with resources, with power, with marginalisation, with inequality, with the instrumentalisation, such a difficult word, of sectarian difference by power holders. They could be power holders locally, they could be regionally, they could be nationally. But my point is, this is the conjunction of politics and religion, which is very different from religion qua religion. And I agree with that. But Declan, does it matter anymore in that specific region? Well, I think it does. And But actually, I want to ask Vincent a question. Based on what you're saying, Vincent, it, would it be the case then that you're saying you have these divides, right? And people, But you know, with education and stability, people find common cause. Take away education stability, add in quest for resources, whatever way you want to put it, and it brings out the atavistic streak. Now, that happened in, that sort of explains Rwanda. Yeah. yeah. The fault lines, it's like they're under, they fester away underneath, and that people who can live side by side or work side by side, you uh, add this... Um, Cat at Northern Ireland. Yeah. And suddenly the atavistic streak comes out, the old tribal origins, no matter how, like you had Catholic priests leading genocide in Rwanda. Mm-hmm. And I mean, also, Sunni Shia divide in Iraq, you had people getting involved in militias that here for were educated, sensible people. Yeah, we had, well, we didn't, um, but there well, were we vicious, the vicious Christian militias in the Lebanese Civil War, mm. yeah. capable of committing extraordinary atrocities, perhaps not as many as on the other side. I don't want to start counting. I don't know if it's tribal difference. I don't know if it's atavism. It seems that there is a predisposition to violence in the human race. I think mm. we, we know that much. And certainly that predisposition has been much more in evident, evidence in the history of the West in this century than in any other region of the world. Let's remember that. But I do agree fully that where you have stability, where you have education, and that stability can sadly be imposed by autocratic figures, where you have something like equal access to resources, people don't tend to fight. And there's not simply in terms of religion in the Middle East, you know, there is this thesis in relation to ethnicity that People are different. They may laugh at one another. They may dislike one another. But typically they don't fight simply because they're different. They fight because they want something or they don't have something. Mm -hmm. And they feel that they're being denied that unjustly. Yeah, I think David Berby said something like that. Do we fight because we're different or are we different because we fight? Susan Phillips, now you wanted to come back about the Sunni Shia divide and how innate this conflict and this tension between them really was? I think that it it is totally the main point that we've got to look at this. I would call it total dislike, but I do accept that in times gone past, there was some sort of rapprochement. But right now, you only have to look at Syria. And in every instance, who is against who is either, except, of course, the, the outside powers. Look at Hezbollah, who are Shiite. They are in there supporting Assad, but they're also absolutely desecrating the Sunnis when they come across them. There's such a dislike amongst them. So I would say that definitely this religious aspect, okay, you could say that it's, you know, we know how it started, but at the moment I would say that they are almost, I would almost say like enemies against each other. Declan Power, One thing I'd like to clear up is exactly who is fighting whom. And I think that there's probably been a framing of what Assad and the Russians are doing, their efforts to frame, that they are fighting ISIS. Yeah. But who are they fighting? Well, to my mind, they're attacking everybody but ISIS. Uh, Oh. The Russians are using this quite cynically as a way to shore up the strength of their guy, who is Assad. And they will oftentimes preface uh, the launch of raids of various bombing sorties where they were attacking ISIS positions. And then you hear, no, there were a number of other areas, a number of other, even there are still pockets of the Free Syrian Army that are quite active. 
and they have been on the receiving end of Russian munitions. And the Russians have been saying, we attacked an IS position. Now, it is quite complex, and there are pockets of different groups that will launch or they'll be attacking an Assad-held area. And then maybe they'll end up fighting amongst themselves as well. The different rebel groups. And I mean, we know this in Ireland because our troops are in the Golan Heights and have often come across pockets of these groups attacking one another. So it is a, it's, a, it's a rather volatile stew on the rebel side, which has been one of the key problems in recent times, I would argue, for the West in trying to, who do we deal with here on the rebel yeah. side? And that is partially the West's fault because when there was a uniformity and an opportunity to have a dialogue with, I would argue, a responsible element, we stood back. You know, lack of intervention, creation of a power vacuum is just as bad. And in this part of the world, we get very exercised. I was down in Trinity there recently to chair a debate. Uh, fine, young, articulate people. And it was was in Western intervention the cause for the creation of IS. Now, it's a complex thing. Partially, you could argue, yes, the disestablishment of the Iraqi army and the the disgruntled Sunni officer corps who are the brains militarily behind IS. But it's more complex than that. Lack of intervention is uh, is worse sometimes than intervention. Mm-hmm. And uh, morally worse. I worked once with an American officer called Fred Polk uh, who went on to do a lot of civil military coordination on humanitarian operations for the UN. And Freddie used to talk about not meeting expectations or creating expectations and then you're arriving in saying we're going to do X, Y and Z and then pulling out and leaving people to their own devices. Yeah, and the West has done that, the US has done that at times and it's because sometimes of the tyranny of public opinion. And we really need to think this through. I mean, we're culpable, we're all culpable. I mean, if I could broaden it for a second, Mm -hmm. we look even, we see parallels with some of what's happening in other parts of of the Middle East, like the Palestinians and uh, why are Hamas in the driving seat in Palestine? Well, I would argue partially because we in the European Union, who were underwriting the new Palestinian state, paying the utilities when Yasser Arafat was in charge, we didn't come in and say, Yasser, your secret police are brutalising your people. You're engaging in rank cronyism. If you want us to keep paying you, there are caveats here. We stood back. We kept doling out the money. But the ordinary Palestinians are ordinary people. They're not you know, mass supporters of terrorism. They got driven into the arms of Hamas because they seemed like, OK, they're extremists, but we can relate to them. <coughs> now, I would argue when you jump forward, IS came to prominence to an extent because you had ordinary sunnies saying, well, you're extremists, but we can kind of relate to you. And this, then this extremist genie gets out of the bottle. And I think that's one of the, the, probably the worst thing in recent history, I would suggest, in Middle East politics, in Middle East geopolitics, was the Arab Spring. Because, and again, we were all taken by surprise. Oh, in that the was West. the grand Twitter revolution. Yeah. But, and yeah. It, well, it was, it was in young, educated mm. people who wanted to move forward. But as soon as the hard men were toppled, those young, educated people who wanted to see democracy got pushed to one side and the extremists took over. And nobody had really thought, and certainly we, I, I would argue in the West, we were remiss in our duties there as well. What do you think, Vincent? Yeah, I, I think there's something in that. I, I'm not sure that I describe the our spring as a disaster per se. I think... Uh, it, it represented, in essence, a great deal of what we're talking about when we talk about IS. You're talking about widespread you know, marginalisation, exclusion. The mistake that we made in the West, in fact, was to think that this was just young, educated people. It simply wasn't. It was millions of people. We saw young people in Cairo because we only know Cairo. We paid no attention to other cities in Egypt. We saw young people in Sana'a. We paid no attention to a million people protesting in Taiz because... Cameras don't go there, journalists don't go there, bar a handful of brave individuals. 
So we substituted, as we often do, our version of reality for what was actually happening. And yes, of course, that's part of it. It wasn't just the failings of the West, of course, it's local politics as well. And I think that's something that in, in thinking about IS, we need to be aware of as well. A lot of what's happening is symptomatic of underlying structural problems, whether they're at the domestic level, whether they're at the regional level. And, you know, thinking in the case of Iraq and Syria that defeating IS is the game, is to get things so wrong. The reality is that until the sort of geopolitical concerns that Declan has talked about, until they're somehow resolved, there's no peace inside for Syria. Until the underlying problems of exclusion, marginalisation, inequality in post-invasion Iraq are resolved, there's no solution in sight for that country. But do, Susan, do those people have the capacity to resolve those issues themselves? And how much are they dependent on the UN and on the West to help rebuild the nation? Well, we're seeing total disarray at the moment. But to go back to the earlier point about um, Russia in Syria, yes, Russia are there for their own good, I agree. But I have no doubt that Russia are looking at ISIS and saying we do not want a rise of ISIS on our own Caucasus borders. And they are terrified of that. And ISIS will not go away. They may get another name, but it's a a side of Islam that is underpinned by a lot of writings, a lot of their their texts, and it's real to them. it won't go away. Declan, how do you see peace coming? And, you know, we are having these big offensives at the moment and perhaps IS will be, you know, driven away temporarily. But how does the end come? Well, how long is a piece of string? But I think one thing to bear in mind, and I think it's been touched on here by the other speakers as well and from various perspectives, if we focus too much on this game is all about defanging, if you like, IS, we're only looking at a small part of the the equation. Now, that's been stated. So also, we need to remember, IS kind of got born. It's a, it's a, a mutation of this fundamentalist extremist impulse. And I think that that would be the mistake if we, we can. I think IS are on the cusp of being defeated as IS, but there'll, there'll be another grouping. Like I, Al-Qaeda. So how do you stop it? Now, yeah, but the one thing I take some, you don't, but the one thing I take some positive sucker out of is that When we saw IS, the lack of reason was stunning compared to Al-Qaeda, who we thought were bad enough. But Al-Qaeda were more intellectual. Even when they did their acts, they had used to publish all kinds of tracts based on uh, theology that they felt underpin it and history. IS didn't do anything like that. IS wanted this international caliphate, which was completely mad, bonkers stuff. Uh, It wasn't going to be achievable. Al-Qaeda, feel free to interrupt me now, but essentially their objective was no Western interference in the Middle East. It was a little bit more recognisable. Therefore, what I'm saying is that it, I think it may be possible as the iterations continue of Islamic fundamentalism for there to be some point of dialogue somewhere along the way. And, that, you know, they're jockeying for position too. Like there was quite a vicious a struggle between uh, elements of Al-Qaeda and IS and I'm sure even within IS. So it's a case of not tarring them all with the one brush and thinking we can't deal with any of them. There is a point where you have to have military means to create space, to defeat people and maybe bring them to the table. And maybe this is something that can happen. IS get defeated as they stand now. There's another mutation. Maybe that other mutation becomes a little bit more realistic in terms of what it wants to do. Now, one thing we can't ignore either, though, is that because IS are losing very much on the conventional battlefield, 
they will resort to what they were doing during the summer. They will resort to using their cyber platforms to influence and we will probably see more iter- uh, more terrorism in Europe than in the West because it is the weapon of the weak and they're in a very weakened state and they need still to try and dialogue and influence their followers. And you mentioned about funding. To be able to continue to get funding, they need to be seen to be players in the game. And terrorism is about the only thing I think that they'll be capable of doing now after they lose ground, after they lose Mosul. But Declan, I was going to say that when a bomber straps a bomb round his waist and goes into a crowd, he does it because he absolutely believes he's going to his heavenly paradise. And until we really realise that this is a real religion with a side to it that is telling them to do this, telling them to have a caliphate that is taking over the whole world, we've got to accept that. We may not agree with it, but we have to accept that they're genuine. I agree. And that's why I would say having a partnership with responsible elements of Islam is so important to counter that warped yeah. theology. I mean, we've heard, we've heard it. I, you know, Dr. Umar Al-Khadri here in Dublin has spoken up, uh, I think, quite courageously and tried to say, this is the other side. And they, they have to interrupt this other twisted ideology. Just like within Irish nationalism, we had to stand up to the people who wanted to pervert the cause of Irish nationalism. I, I want to give Vincent actually the final word. Do you think there is a capacity within the Middle East region for a functioning democracy? Given yeah. the right support, yeah? Absolutely. How I long can't. do you think it'll take to come about? I couldn't even begin to answer that question, but it requires so much to be in place and uh, benign non-interference and in large part on the part of outside powers would be a great place to start. I don't see any reason why Arabs and Muslims are as are incapable of self-government as anybody else in the world And you're saying non, non-interference by Well, the what West. I mean is that historically, certainly if we go back the last 150 years, the impact of outside interference in the region has been negative, has been undermining, has been overtly undermining of the democratic impulse time and time again, and in a more generalised sense, has simply hindered any attempts made by people to govern themselves. And if you look at the Cold War and at the post-Cold War period, what has animated, what has underpinned, whether it's the US, Russia, or for that matter, the European powers, their policies in the region, has been the reality of self-interest, the rhetoric perhaps of democracy, mm-hmm. the reality of self-interest. And where any time there's a tension between the two, where there's a conflict between the two, the preference for outside powers is self-interest, is strategic interest, is resources, is the alliance with the brutal dictators who themselves are the reason, in part, not in total, for the mess so much of the region is in today. Is there a case for enlightened interference? Well, we've tried enlightened interference and it depends on who's defining enlightenment. And if it's George Bush, for instance, and that version of enlightenment is one that people of the region can live without. Hmm. But if that was the case, Vincent, tell me one Muslim country which has a real democracy. Indonesia? Mm. Well, does it? Stretching it a bit, I think. I Vincent. think that's stretching but, it. Well, so I'd ask what okay. in the Middle East... We, if we're going to talk about what's a functioning democracy, we can argue the toss about all sorts of places that we assume are yeah, our and, and it'll take, okay, it took well, about maybe. 500 years for Europe to get to where we are now. It yeah. took it took at yeah. least 500 years. So, it took genocide. It took the project sorry, of Vincent. colonialism, and it took two world wars. Right, yeah, so, but, but, but we need to we need to allow or, uh, or facilitate the Middle East to start that journey. We have too high expectations. Like we thought, the Arab Spring was going to give them a European-style democracy. That was ridiculous. Again, right, but sorry, but Vincent, but, but what would you do? So we've been complaining about how America did not intervene in Syria militarily five years ago, okay? And you're saying that intervention generally has led to 
a worsening of the situation because that intervention has been it's the country's self-interest, saying America's self-interest mm-hmm. and Russia's self-interest. But do you think now, given the mess that is out there and the nation building that is required, that we can actually step back now and say, listen, we believe that you have the capacity within you to build a nation and to form a functioning democracy. Off you go. We're going to leave you to it. No, I mean, I don't mean cut ties. Right. What I mean is the absence of the self-interested approach that we've had for for centuries. Okay, I will have to leave it there. Vincent Urach, Declan Powers, Susan Phillips, many thanks for joining me this morning. Aidan McKelvey Research, Stephen Jordan produced, and thank you for listening.